Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here on this beautiful spring day. It really is spring, right, here in Wisconsin. It only took, you know, like eight months to get here, but <laughs> we're glad it's here finally. Uh, so good morning, and, uh, you know, I'm just going to do a little shout-out to Mrs. Candace Lynn. If you're watching at home, we know you are not been feeling very good this week, so we'll just let you know you're in our prayers, and so I'd just like to share that. All right, well, take your Bibles this morning and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 34 this morning. And what we want to be talking about this morning is a life worth living. As we'll bring this out of the passage, a life worth living. It's my understanding that Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Life isn't worth living until you have found something worth dying for. If something is not worth dying for, we could ask the question, then why would somebody live for it? And as we go through these verses this morning, it really questions, what do we live for? Uh, what, is, what has the priority in our lives? What do I live for? What do I live for? We know, as Christians, the, the, what gives life meaning, what gives life worth is, is, is Jesus Christ. He's the one that gives uh, us worth to our life. Jesus Christ is worth dying for. He gives my life meaning. He gives me a future. He gives me grace and strength for today. And he makes this life worth living. As we turn our attention back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to just remember for a few moments what's going on in this setting. This church was struggling with a multitude of issues. Sin was basically running rampant through their congregation. And what Paul is dealing with in this chapter is an issue in which some of the believers there were beginning to teach that there was no such thing as the resurrection from the dead. And what Paul's been explaining is, if you believe that, if you believe there's no resurrection of the dead, then you must believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead, and therefore nothing has meaning. And that's basically what he's been saying. He's, he's went over this now biblically and theologically. He reached back to the Old Testament, said this was prophesied. He's talked about what the gospel is. He's talked about the power of the gospel in their lives and basically showing them, if you throw away resurrection, you throw away all of this with it. And now what he's doing is moving to some more practical arguments, if you will. Not only is what you're saying so theologically wrong, but it also is going to rob your life of any power and meaning. So thus he deals with it here. And let's look at our passage, beginning with verse 29. And I'm just going to read through verse 34. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. 
speak this to your shame. Again, what we find in this passage is Paul is showing that without the resurrection of Christ, life is really not worth living. And the things that he was enduring were a complete waste of time. It was a joke. He should move on, find something else to do. Because he lived in a time when they suffered for their faith. He lived in that, a very real setting, which as an apostle, he went through a whole host of persecutions and trials. And it would be utter, it would be utter insanity for him to do that if there was no such thing as resurrection. If Christ did not rise, it would all be nonsense. And so this is the view he's correcting. And so as we go through this passage, we want to make two major points. And the first one is that the resurrection of Christ gives purpose to life. It gives purpose to life. And as we go down this line, we're going to say this first. Our hope in Christ leads us to sacrifice for him. We're going to see some takeaways from this passage, which constitutes a life worth living for the Lord. And the first one is, he does a work in our heart to bring us to the place where we want to give back to him. We sacrifice our very self for him. We were actually talking about this in Sunday school. In Romans 12, 1 through 3, where it talks about presenting our bodies a living sacrifice because of the awesomeness of who God is, because of what Christ did for us, and because that's where you find real meaning and fulfillment in life, when you give yourself back to the Lord as a believer in Him. Our hope in Christ leads us to sacrifice for Him. And we're going to see that in verses 29 through uh, 31 here. Now we're going to start with this really interesting verse, verse 29. Again, it says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? This verse talks about something called baptism for the dead. And Paul doesn't explain it. It's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. It's one of the most confusing verses in all of Scripture. And I heard one Bible commentators say that there's anywhere from 40 to 400 interpretations of what he's talking about here. So let me quickly just run down the 400 possibilities. Uh, first, of, no, I'm just kidding. I'm going to give you about four or five to chew on. But I can dogmatically say this, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I really don't know for sure. I may have my own personal leaning, but it, there's a few things to consider. A common view and if you hear a thud over here, there's a bird that's insisting to get into the church this morning through this window. So every once in a while you hear like a little tap. So it may distract me. I hear something over there anyway. If it distracts you, that's what's going on. All right, anyway. Verse 29 again. Baptism for the dead. What does it mean? Well, a common view is that Paul is dealing with some pagan practices at that time and culture in which the Corinthians would have been familiar where people were baptized to somehow affect their afterlife. There was a pagan cult to the north, and there's some thought that maybe some of the Corinthians were buying into that because, you know, they were buying into the wisdom of the world. They had allowed some pagan practices come in. Some of them were, you know, a few chapters back, he talks about they were going to the idol, the idol temple to get meat, and so they were dabbling with some heathen practice, and he corrected that. So maybe that's what's happening. And the people who hold that view will say, and notice that Paul says, they, not we. He says, what will they do who are baptized the dead? And then in verse uh, 30, he says, why do we stand? So maybe he's talking about a group, a they group, but not we. 
So that's a possibility. It's not one that I particularly lean to. And the reason I don't really lean to it is because in this whole epistle of 1 Corinthians, anytime Paul encountered an issue, he corrected it. So would he really just throw in another issue and give no context, no instruction, no correction, and move on just like that? If this was some pagan practice that somebody was doing within their fellowship, wouldn't have he called that out and said, just like he did with the idol temples, just like he did with the Lord's Supper, just like he did with all the sexual sin and everything else that was going on, wouldn't he have called it out? I don't think he would just throw it out and move on like it was, you know, I don't, so I really don't personally lean that way, but it is a very common view. Some think maybe the Corinthians were doing something unique in their own church. Maybe they were practicing something we might call vicarious baptism. So this is a second view. Maybe they were practicing vicarious baptism for the dead. Some people think that perhaps what was happening is some people who professed Christ died before they got water baptized, and they were water baptized in that time. He talks about in chapter 1. So maybe they were doing like a proxy baptism. Another believer would get baptized in your place. That's a view. It's not one I think particularly holds a lot of water, no pun intended, because why would they do that? It doesn't make any sense. There's nothing in Scripture to ever commend that that should be or ever was practiced. There's no evidence they did that, and there's certainly no reason to believe they would do that. So again, another view we're not sure about. Now, there is a group of individuals, though, that do practice proxy baptism. It's the Mormons, the Church of Latter-day Saints. They do a proxy baptism, and for them, it's even a step beyond what I just described. For them, they have the idea that an individual in their church can get baptized for somebody already dead, and then that person in in the afterlife is offered the opportunity to accept that baptism or not. That is certainly not in the Bible. Nowhere. It's not biblical. It's unscriptural. And that's why we would reject any idea of proxy baptism. Now another view, perhaps what Paul's talking about, about the baptism for the dead, is perhaps there were some believers in their church who, as they were hearing the gospel, perhaps one of the things that, that led them to accept the Lord and to practice water baptism as they were doing is perhaps they had had loved ones who were saved, say a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, and that person trusted the Lord and then died. And then they were thinking, I want to be with them in the afterlife. So they accepted the Lord and got water baptized somewhat so they could be reunited with the dead again. That's a view to me that has a little bit of merit. I mean, I could understand that. Perhaps the testimony of others that went on caused some to accept the Lord and they, they looked to have a hope of being reunited in the afterlife. And if that indeed was the case, then it would make sense. If you throw the resurrection away, then that was all for naught because you're not going to be reunited with your loved ones in the afterlife. So that's an interesting view. I think it would have some merit. Another view is that perhaps the baptism for the dead is talking about baptism unto death in the sense of like what Jesus said, in Luke 12:50, Jesus said this, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. When he said that, he was talking about baptism through the cross. He was talking about being baptized unto, unto death, if you will, a baptism of death. And he actually, at one point, uh, questioned his disciples, can you, can you be baptized with the baptism of which I'm going to be baptized? And he said, you, I think he said they would. 
But it could be speaking here. If that's the idea, maybe then what Paul would be talking about, baptism for the dead, is maybe he's speaking about people who were martyred, people who were in a context of suffering, because he's obviously talking about suffering. The very next verse says, why are we in jeopardy every hour? He's actually talking about the suffering that came along with being a professing Christian in that time. And so perhaps what he's talking about is that some Christians actually had immersed themselves into suffering and death for the Lord. And he may be questioning, well, what good was it then if the dead did not rise? It would have been a waste of time. No, no sense getting martyred or suffer for your faith. So there could be an idea of a baptism unto death in that sense. Those are some views out there. I'm going to give you one more. It's probably the one I lean toward the most. But you can come to your own conclusions and then we're going to move on. I think he may be speaking to the fact that they were... Um, the Corinthians were pretty fixated on, on, on the practice of water baptism. All of chapter 1 is talking about divisions and cliques in their church. And one of the things Paul says is, hey, I wasn't sent to baptize. I didn't baptize in you in my name. I only baptized this person, this person, and this person. He says that back in chapter 1. So he may have been, they may have been saying, well, I was baptized uh, for this person. I was baptized by that person. They may have been really, baptism may have been very strongly connected to their divisions. And he may actually be speaking back into that issue that you uh, insist to be baptized in the name of Christ who is dead. You are being baptized for one of the dead. Why would you get so worked up about baptism if the dead don't rise? Does that make sense? Why get so worked? You got baptized for one of the dead because you're so big on, on, on this issue. But why, what, what's the big deal about it if the dead do not rise? So that's something I kind of wonder if he's not kind of stated in there. But again, I don't know for sure. <laughs> and I can guarantee you, no one does. And there's been dissertations and thesis written on that one verse, and, and they'll talk about all the issues, but it's really, you can't come to a really dogmatic uh, final standing on that passage. But there's some different things to consider. But whatever it was, we can be assured that it wasn't some cultic thing, because Paul would not have just let a cultic thing come into church and not correct it, or he would... He would have corrected it like he did everything else. So there's something here, but the point, the takeaway is, whatever they were doing was useless if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and there's no resurrection. It was another useless aspect of what they were doing. Verse 30, he says, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? We mentioned that verse a little bit already, but he's speaking of the danger he faced every day as an apostle of Christ, as he traveled the Mediterranean world. He was willing to suffer for Christ, even willing to die for Christ. But he says, why would we put our, subject ourselves to all this suffering if, he, if we didn't fully believe he rose from the dead? We wouldn't do this without hope of resurrection. We wouldn't do this. And we also learn here that Paul's favorite game show was Jeopardy. Because he watched, he was in it every hour. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> sorry, I... Got to throw something out there to make sure you're awake. <clears throat> Why would he bother with a life of persecution if Jesus had not risen from the dead? Verse 31, he says again, I, he says, I affirm by the boasting in, in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. This verse is a little bit puzzling. What does he mean by the boasting? He says, assuredly as I boast about you and Jesus Christ, I die daily. 
There's even some debate on exactly what he's saying in there. The, the Greek in that passage is a bit difficult. It's worded completely different than what you find in most of your English Bibles in the Greek. But it seems that what he may be saying is that just as, just as assuredly as he boasted about the Corinthians because of Christ's work in them, just as assuredly as that, he just as assuredly died daily. Meaning, again, he went through suffering on a daily basis for the Lord. And he's just saying, we all have lost our minds if we'd go through all this and Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if there's no resurrection from the dead. So Paul says again, I die daily. And again, he's talking about, in one sense, dying to himself every day for the Lord. He gave himself over. He gave his body over for the Lord every day. And as an apostle, that meant, may not mean exactly how it looks like for you, because Paul had to travel city from city. It's much more akin to a missionary today. But he traveled. That was his calling and his part in the body of Christ. And in that role, he suffered much. But turn over in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for a moment. And I want to read another passage of Scripture that is similar to what we're reading, and it gives a little it kind of connects things a little bit more for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll look at verses 7 through 15. Paul says here later to the same group of people. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the light of Christ in us. And he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And what he's saying in that verse is, We're an earthen jar. We're a clay pot. But in us is this treasure of who God is, the presence of Christ, the light of Christ that's shining through the world. And he's describing here almost like a cracking process the earthen vessel is cracked, and through the cracks, the light shines out. It always reminds me of the story of Gideon when they were told to put their torches in the earthen jars, and then at the last moment, they busted their jars, and everybody, all of a sudden, there's, they were surrounded by torches, and the enemy went fleeing. It kind of reminds me of, of that story. But we go on with verse 8. He says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 10, always carrying about in the body the dying for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Again, through the trials, through the suffering. The Lord is molding us. The Lord is working us. We are in the potter's hands. And through those trials and tribulations, your faith grows. And as that happens, the light of Christ is manifested or shines out of your life. This is why Paul was willing to die daily. This is the kind of thing he was talking about. He knew he was never forsaken. He knew how, never how bad it got. No, bat, no matter the health crisis, no matter the political issues, no matter what people were saying about him or how they were insulting him or questioning him, he kept his eyes on the Lord knowing God was using it all to grow him. And he always left it be about the Lord's work in his life. 
We read on with verse 11. He says, For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also, excuse me, also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. I read that one already, but verse 12. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, for I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. He says it's all worth it because Jesus rose from the dead and he's working something through all this. It's not for naught because Jesus did come back from the dead and we too will be raised from the dead. So nothing we do is ever in vain for the Lord. And thus he was willing to lay down his life every single day. It was Jesus Christ who gave him purpose. It was Jesus Christ who gave him a life worth living. It was because of the resurrection of Christ, again, that Paul was willing to sacrifice so much for the Lord. You remember the widow that you read about in the Gospels, the one who put her two mites in the temple treasury? You can read about her in Mark chapter 12. I'll just read a couple of verses. Mark 12, 41 through 44 says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrans. Which I think if you look back on the monetary system of the time was like it's not even two cents. I think it's very little. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. You know, we don't, we don't know much about that widow. We don't even get her name in the text. All we get is that Jesus saw it, and he won't forget it. And now they're together in, in, in heaven right now. We don't know much about her. We know she was bereaved of her husband because she was a widow, so she had lost that. We know she was poor. She was impoverished, so she didn't have any money hardly to speak of. But she gave unto the Lord. And I like how he says, she gave all. She gave all. Now, he's looking at the financial side of it in that context. But really, for her, you think about it. We don't know where she came from. She may have journeyed far. She was there at the temple. So she, not just her money, but her time was there. Her presence was there. Her heart was there on the things of God. So when he says that she gave all, yeah, it's talking about money, but really beyond that, the heart is she gave her whole heart to God. And it was pictured through how she put in two mites. Out of all she had, she gave all she had. That was a picture of her heart for the Lord. She gave all. She gave all. Look, look, God... God's not after your money. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. The money in your pocket belongs to him, actually. So anyway, you're a steward. But he's not after your money. He wants all of you. That's what God wants today from you. He wants all of you. He wants you to lay down your life to him. Trust Christ as your savior. He was died. He was buried. He rose again the third day. You put your faith in Christ. You're saved. If you've never made that decision, make it now. But once you're saved, he doesn't want you to fulfill a a, a gigantic task list. 
He doesn't want you to walk on water, spiritually speaking. He wants you to give him your heart and therefore your life as a living sacrifice. That's what he calls us to. That's what Paul understood. That's how Paul lived. That's how we're called to live. We sacrifice for him. The next point we want to make here, we spent a long time on that point, but the rest of them won't be that long, I promise you. (laughs) Though you know how a preacher keeps a promise, right? Our hope in Christ leads us to live with intentionality. Our hope in Christ leads us to live with intentionality. In verse 32, Paul says again, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Our hope in Christ leads us to live with intentionality. What we mean by that is to live intentionally. This means that there is something behind our choices and our actions. How we spend ourselves, whether financially, time, ability, whatever the currency is, we all spend of ourselves. And the question is, to what do we give ourselves? To what do we give our heart? To what do we give our time? How do we spend of ourselves? Paul here talks about fighting with beasts at Ephesus. Uh, whether that's literal, it's a possibility. Uh, Christians, I don't think at this point, were known for being thrown to the lions quite just yet. That came later. But it's possible that maybe he had some encounter at Ephesus. By the way, when he's writing 1 Corinthians, that's, that's where he is. He's in Ephesus. He's been in Ephesus for around three years, ministering here. And he's hearing what's going on across, uh, across the sea in, in Corinth. And he's correcting, you know, he's giving encouragement and correction and, and redrawing their focus on the Lord. Maybe he had a literal encounter with a real beast. But it may be more likely that he's speaking of people who opposed his ministry, because there's plenty of record of that. If you go back and read Acts chapter 19, you can read of Paul's ministry. And that's where, when he started to minister, a lot of the pagans got upset, because he was turning people to Christ. And when they got turned to Christ, they were giving up their idols. And some of the coppersmiths and silversmiths didn't like it. It was bad for business, because they made the idols, right? They made little gods that you could purchase. (laughs) But act now. We'll throw in a second one for... No, I'm just kidding, but like a, some bizarro infomercial, like, get your idol now. But they didn't like that because, they, you know, they were losing money. They were, they were, their, their, their careers were crumbling. So they withstood him, and it ended up getting the whole town into an uproar, and it drew out the, you know, the, the higher-up political figures and, and all this. And that may be what he's talking about, is these people who withstood him. That, and he may be speaking euphemistically, you know, not naming names, not to get anybody maybe in trouble or something. We don't know for sure. It's all possible. But the point is, whatever he went through at Ephesus, he says, what advantage is it to me? Why would I have gone through this? Because it certainly came, whatever the beast is, whether it's a literal beast or a figurative statement about some of the political figures or people opposing him, whatever, whoever he had in mind, what advantage would it be? Why, why do that if the dead do not rise? Why would anybody suffer? Why would anybody go through any discomfort for the name of Christ if none of this stuff's real? And then he quotes that very quotable phrase, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's what he says. He says, this is life. If there's no resurrection, if the dead do not rise, this is all you have. Eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow you die. 
That's the only thing you've got left in life. And let me tell you, most people in the world, isn't that kind of how you live? You know, you, you might fill in the blank. It may not be eat and drink. It may be play basketball, tomorrow we die. It may be, I don't know, drive a race car. It may be, well, I'm going to be a corporate giant, and then tomorrow I die. I don't know, whatever, whatever, fill in the blank. But you're just living for this world, and there's really no point to it. Because tomorrow you're dead, and, every, and it's all for nothing. And that's all the hope that the world has outside of Christ. And so why do you think there's so much hurt and pain and sin and drug usage and abuse of things like sex and everything else? People are looking for something to live for. And they can't find it in any of that. Now, the people go through that and they spend their whole lives and at the end there's nothing left. And all they have is regret. Because they're looking for what gives life meaning, what makes life worth living. And Paul had the answer. Jesus Christ alone makes life worth living. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's the life he gives you, a life with him, where the Spirit of God indwells you, and you have daily fellowship with the God of the universe. And you get to walk with him day by day, and suddenly, even the smallest thing you do has meaning behind it, because God is in it with you. And you are walking your Christian life inside him. It all has meaning because he gives it meaning. And so we say we want to live with purpose. We want to live with intentionality. We want to be intentional in how we spend ourselves, whether it's our time, our talent, our money, whatever it is. We all are pouring ourselves into something. What is it? Is it the Lord and what he's doing or something else? That's the idea of being intentional, to evaluate what am I doing? What am I involved in? Not being afraid to say no to things. Prioritizing relationships. Prioritizing time with God. Spending time in the Word. Being intentional in seeking to share your faith with others. Those are all aspects of that life of Christ coming out of you. It leads us to live with intentionality and purpose. As we move on to the last couple of verses, we'll see that the resurrection of Christ calls us to righteousness. Verse 33 again says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Here we're going to make the point, our hope in Christ leads us to avoid negative influence. I kind of struggled on how to word that. Because Paul's talking about, particularly in their case, they were being deceived by falsehood, by lies by a heresy about the the resurrection of the dead. The dead do not rise. That's negative, and that's going to shipwreck people's faith. So the truth of God is to be stood for. And when people teach things that are not from the word of God, that harm people's faith, those things are to be withstood, to be avoided, to be separated from. And he says... Evil company corrupts good habits. He's basically saying, if you don't separate from the ones who teach this kind of nonsense, then it will spread like a cancer. He calls, it, he calls such things cancer in 2 Timothy. It spreads like cancer. Nobody likes to hear the words of, you've got cancer. But he says, that's, that's what falsehood, that's what lies do. It spreads like cancer. It's like the weeds. Look at the dandelions out there, right? You can't. Good luck, right? You can't stop the... 
But that's like, that's like when, when people twist God's truth. And all of a sudden, it's everywhere. And it's affecting people's hearts and lives. He says, again, evil company corrupts good habits. That's a principle. Some people, they, they believe it comes from a, a cultural reference, a play, and he's quoting a play of the time, and it could be. But we know at this point, the principle's true because he quotes it as such. Evil company corrupts good habit. And this has so much application. We recognize in the context, again, we have to, we have to preserve the truth of God's word. It's all we've got from him. We've got his spirit within us who guides us into all truth. But it's the word of God that gives you the revealed will of God. So you know what is good and what is evil. And you know what to call good and what to call evil. And we all know we, we, we've had people in our lives where when you spend time together, it may not be for your better. It may not be for your better. You know, I had friends even as a teenager before I came to Christ. And once I came to Christ, I remember t- talking to them about the gospel. I was excited, as everybody is right away. And, and, and they listened, and nobody really cared much about it. And you know what happened? We drifted apart over the next couple of years. Because the things that they lived for weren't the things that I lived for anymore. So what do we... I can still love them and share with them, but it doesn't mean we're going to be hand in hand. And to be fair, if I would have stayed friends, and I would have followed in some of the things they did... You probably wouldn't even know who I am today. You wouldn't know who I am. We understand what he says when he says, evil company corrupts good habits. The old saying, if you throw one bad apple into a barrel, not, much, not very long, all the apples are bad, right? That one bad apple doesn't cure, you know. Now, Jesus Christ can save a bad apple and make it and renew it and make it a new apple. <laughs> it's a little different scenario there, but we know the idea. Earlier in the epistle, Paul had written to them on a, this grievous sin. There was incest going on. You go back to chapter 5, and you can read about it. And he says, you need, to, you need to put that person out of the fellowship. You have to separate that out. Because if they don't, what are they saying? This is okay. This is okay here. So come on in and with all this nonsense. And then what would happen? It went wrong, and other people would be saying, you know what, that must not be such a bad thing after all. So sometimes you have to say, no, there's, here's what God says. And if you don't want to be about what God says, this may not be the place for you. Because we have to preserve what God calls us to. We have to live in righteousness. He calls us to righteousness and do not sin, he says in verse 34. There's a story about two students in college one time that had an exam on a, on a Friday. And, and then Thursday night, you know, they were smart guys. And Thursday night, just decided to party all night. They, they woke up Friday morning. They supposed to be taking the exam around 8 a.m. They had overslept. They had been drunk and all that in revelry, and so they, they missed the exam. So they went to see the professor later that day and pled with him to give them another chance. And they made up excuses. They said, well, we were coming, and we got a flat tire, and we didn't make it on time. We really want to do the exam. And so he says, all right, I'll give you the opportunity. He says, come back tomorrow. Be here at 8 a.m., and we're going to do an oral exam. I'll just let you do oral exam, and we'll, we'll finish it up. So they come back the next day, and uh, he brings them in, and, he, and they notice that in the room they go in, there's a chair facing that way, a chair facing that way. He says, go ahead and sit down. They both sit facing out. And first of all, he says, question number one, this is worth five points. He says, what is, what is the compound H2O? And they were both like, water, obviously. This guy said water, this guy said water. That was easy. I thought, this is going to be easy. 
He says, question number two. This question's worth 95 points. Which tire? So anyway. <laughs> the point is, they pulled each other down, right? And they're schooling in that story to joke. They pulled each other down. That's what happens. And it's not that you don't try to reach out. You are in the world, but we're very much warned against being of the world. Do not participate in the works of darkness. Be, be careful how far you get sucked into things because of this verse. Because they were saying, well, maybe it's okay, to, it's okay for this group to say there's no resurrection. Well, is it? Is it okay? Paul didn't think it was okay. Paul said, no, this, this is going to shipwreck people. This is going to leave people without hope. It won't be long, they'll be given up. Because when it gets tough and there's no hope, they're going to quit. And then what? He knew. He knew through what he went through, this is not going to work. You can't believe things that are lies and have victory in your life. <clears throat> so we want to be influenced by people who love the Lord and walk in his truth. And sometimes we have to make hard calls on who we're friends with or who we follow down the pathways. We, gotta be, we, we, we need to be wary of who we allow to influence us and is it for good or not. Verse 34 again says, Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Our hope in Christ leads us to spread the knowledge of God. It leads us to spread the knowledge of God. You know, sometimes in the Christian life, we can fall asleep, as it were. We can kind of get lulled by the things of the world, and we get kind of caught up, and before long we're over here, and we're focused on all this stuff, and we kind of like wake up one day and be like, wait a minute. This is, this is, God called me to this over here, to live over here. You know, you know what I mean? You can fill in the blank. You, know, you get so caught up in life's about work. Life's about this hobby of mine. Life's about this thing or that thing. We probably all could sit down and, and list a few things that's probably temptations for us that really can get us off track sometimes. Things that kind of speak to our heart, that pull us away from the priorities of God. Look, I'm not saying you can't have fun, you can't do hobbies, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, what are you living for? What are you living for? He calls us to live for Christ alone. So everything in our life bows to that reality. But we can, as Christians, kind of fall asleep and then wake up one day and be like, how did I get over here? Well, I, I need to go back and make some changes. I need to reevaluate how I'm spending my time, my money, my talents, my resources. How, what am I pouring myself into? And that's kind of the, the verbiage of verse 34. Awake to righteousness. Wake up. Remember what this is all about what Jesus Christ is all about. We are here to live righteously for the Lord. To live righteously. And the Corinthians were struggling with that. And sometimes you and I probably struggle with that, of what's righteous before the Lord in our hearts, and our lives. And he calls us back. Because it's when we walk in righteousness that we will be the most effective of spreading the knowledge of God. Paul says, do not sin. You can't live in sin and then be an effective ambassador of Jesus Christ because your life does not demonstrate the message. The two would be unaligned. Jesus Christ is righteous. He died for our sins. Our life is meant to reflect that reality in our daily life where we move away from that which is sin and move toward that which is righteousness in the Lord's eyes. So he calls us to awake to that and because of the Corinthian so-called slumber, 
many in their community didn't even know about the Lord, apparently. He says, they don't have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. We don't know for sure. He may be talking about the community at large, the, the city around them. Like, like, you guys are here to diffuse the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all people can see is your nonsense. <laughs> That's all they're seeing. And they're like, I'm not signing up for that. It could be the community and that they're not taking the gospel out. And I even wonder, is it possible he's talking about people that's in their group? That there's some in your group who don't even know about God. They join you because they saw you're having a party every Sunday called the Lord's Supper. Or for some other reason. We don't know for sure exactly what he 100% meant there. But the point is, the way they were living was not furthering the work of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ. It was not furthering that. And that's something we always keep in our minds. And how I living, and what I living for, does that further the work of God, the gospel of God? One of the major ways that Paul shared the gospel in his own ministry by, was by giving his testimony. If you go, you will see his testimony in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 24, when he's before leaders, Acts chapter 26, before another leader. He talks about it in Galatians chapter 1. He talks about it in 1 Timothy 1. He talks about how the grace that came to him through Jesus Christ saved him and transformed his life. And that's what you find him sharing so often. He was bold with the gospel. But he shared his testimony. He talked simply about what had the Lord done for him. And you know what? You may not consider yourself like some great evangelist this morning. I don't think that about myself by any means. But you know what we all can do? We can all talk about what the Lord's done in our life. And that may be the simplest way for you to share the gospel with somebody. Just talk, what has the Lord done for you? How did he save you and begin to transform your life? And that will speak into the hearts of other people. Just like Paul did. Just like he was used of the Lord. We too can tell people what the Lord has done for us. Again, Jesus Christ, he gives us a life worth living. And it's because of the promise of resurrection. Have you ever heard of the man by the name of Bill Fay? He's a well-known evangelist. He's written some books on evangelism. You got to hear him in person once. Before he was a Christian, he was a cutthroat businessman known for gambling, with ties to the mafia, and even operated a house of prostitution. You know, if you heard that, if you saw that resume, you would think this guy's like a villain. That's who this guy is. He was a very ungodly man. Probably doesn't sound like a guy you want to spend a lot of time with. Doesn't sound like a guy you really want to meet necessarily. But he had a Jewish Christian friend uh, by the name of Paul, and Paul spent time trying to tell Bill about the Lord, and they played racquetball together, and most of the time Bill just made fun of him. But Paul just kept enduring, just was, would share about what the Lord was doing, share about the gospel. And then Bill, because he was a sinner, he would even manipulate Paul. Paul was a doctor, and he would even waste his time to try to make him late for work. That's what he was doing. As he's, this guy's trying to share the gospel. He would waste his time to make him late for work. He would act interested and then, then not be, just to make him late. So his heart, obviously, was in this world. 
But it wasn't long after that Bill's life came crashing down. He was actually arrested for some of his illegal activities. And, he, and it started to break him. And he finally decided he needed God. And with Paul's words in his mind, his friend Paul's words, he drove to a little church, a little church he had been married in, and he started to talk to the pastor. And that day he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And his life began to change. He became this well-known evangelist. He's written a book, wrote a book called Share Jesus Without Fear. His method is you just take a Bible and you let people read a few key verses and you, say, and they, you ask them, what do you think that means? Read this. What does that mean to you? And get them to think about what Scripture's saying about the reality of sin, their state of being lost, and their need of a Savior. And that's the method he uses. But what I think of when I think of Bill Fay, another guy like, the Paul, like Paul the Apostle, whose life was radically transformed once he knew Christ as his Savior, suddenly all the garbage that he'd been living for didn't matter anymore. Now Jesus Christ is what mattered. He lived for him, and he gave his life for him in sharing the gospel with others. That's all God wants. He just wants your heart. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word and its power on our hearts, Lord. We thank you for the spirit that dwells in us, and we pray that our hearts would just be open to what you're saying to us this morning, and each one of us continue to consider how we, we spend of ourselves, Lord. How do we pour our lives into things? What are we pouring our lives into, Lord? May you continue just to work in us. May we be encouraged. May we be faithful to you. May we just be uh, ready to live this week in your fellowship, Lord, knowing you are with us every step of the way. May we just give our hearts to you, Lord, day by day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.